Hello, welcome to Kill Your Silos, the only show about operation that dares to ask the fundamental question at the heart of every operator's mind. That question is, of course, is there a better way to manage all of this shit? And I'm here to prove to you that there is, and it's called Revenue Operations. In each episode, I will host one of the innovators of operations and ask them their thoughts. Today, I will be speaking with Ross Newber, Director of Operations at Toast, the app company making sure you get your food during COVID. Ross is a self-proclaimed weirdo about designing art, and he's currently at his parents' house in Vermont. Welcome, Ross, to Kill Your Silos. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, it's really great to see myself in the reflection of that beautiful snow behind you. It's yeah, haunting. I thought it would add some drama to <laughs> it. The definitely add some drama. It. Uh, it, it's a multi-layered thing that's happening. It's very interesting. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Um, we are both in remote locations today um, because of Thanksgiving and COVID and the world. So uh, thank you for taking time out and talking to me about operations. It's really my pleasure. It's a, it's a good excuse to step away from you know family time for 45 minutes and chat about operations and then go back and have them be confused about what my job is. Let's start with a question. And, and I, I like this baby doll pose I'm doing. Let's start with a question, <laughs> which is, what do you tell your parents that you do for a living? Uh, I make the company more money by making it more efficient. Oh, you make the company more money by making it more efficient. I like that. Um, much better than how I try to explain it to my parents. Um, so I think that's a, I'll go with that. I make companies more money. I think that's the, the way to go with it. So you know, it's, it's, it's one yeah, of those ahead. things where I, I always joke that that's why it's called revenue operations. It's because it's all going to go back to the dollar somehow, right? Whether that's retention or renewal or, you know, being more efficient in your go-to-market funnel, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, the, you know, North star for the teams that I work with is that bottom line revenue number. And so how do we make sure all of the actions we're taking are going to just drive more efficiency, right? Whether that's dollar efficiency or, or CAC, it doesn't really matter, but I think it's a helpful lens to understand how operators impact companies. So this is really interesting because you and I have very different views on how to sell this to people, I think. Because when you talk about efficiency, it is true. And I think that efficiency is a, a gain that is that happens through revenue operations. But I think the danger in operations in general, or the reason why we need a new term like revenue operations to even emerge, is because operations has been looked at as such a cost efficiency thing in organizations and not a revenue generation engine. That when you say efficiency, it means like we're going to find the areas to cut. Or when I think about revenue operations, I'm thinking about how we're going to expand by finding the patterns in our buying experiences that customers have, where operations can actually fill in gaps, right? That our customers are experiencing. Thus, when they close with the sales rep, in reality, the sales rep could have gotten, you know, more money out of them had they not had these experiences that are really operational experiences and down, and, you know, downfalls in the operational uh, path during that thing. So I think that sometimes efficiency is something that's gained, but I think the real goal for me is to create more revenue. So, you know, in our models at GoNimbly, we found that we can get like 26% more out of each customer using the revenue operations models that we've developed. Do you sell the word efficiency because it's one that people can understand and attach to? Because you must realize, and I, and I think that having had some experience with, you know, your thought leadership in this space, you must think that ultimately the end user customer for you is beyond your own internal business and the people who are actually buying your product. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I agree with you and I disagree with you, right? Let me put it that way, where I think that efficiency is a loaded term because I think often people, to your point, think of efficiency as we're going to trim some fat over here. Right. Right. We're going to we're going to reduce spend. And that's what efficiency means. Yes. And that's not what I mean by driving efficiency. And I like to go back to this example of driving driving revenue. And one of my favorite ones to use is inbound funnel optimization as a form of really straight line efficiency gains. You can generate with operations techniques only that really drive downstream revenue numbers. And to give a specific example, right at, at Toast, you know, this is back two years ago. Uh our MPL funnel was underperforming where we wanted it to be. And we didn't want to increase the size of the team. We were underperforming on some of our best lead sources, you know, things like Odanic, where it's, you know, those leads are already high quality. So it wasn't a lead quality issue, but we really wanted to juice the channel. And so we ran a bunch of analysis on, to your point, right, behavior of these MQLs, what really impacted their ability to and we found a, a couple key things, right? The unshocking time to first touch was an incredible needle mover for us. That the decay rate for MQLs is actually pretty quick, right? We had to work you deeply in a pretty tight number of days yeah. or we were going to give up efficiency, right? And we basically just used a bunch of, of lead prioritization mechanisms to make sure that our ISAs were, our inbound sales associates, the toast equivalent of a BDR, um, were working those leads in the first 15 minutes, hitting a touch compliance number in those first handful of days and doing those things, we doubled the efficiency of our MQL conversion. And that's, by the way, not hyperbole, right? We, we doubled the MQL no, conversion I, I, maintaining- I know the power of operations. Down. Yeah, totally. I'm saying that for your guests, not for you, bud. Oh, no, yeah. um, but like, right, like that, like we, we moved that number that much and all of our downstream numbers, like our opt to win rate stayed the same. We generated twice as much revenue from the same number of MQLs, right? And so to your point, right, like, Yes, that's a kind of way of looking at efficiency, but we didn't do that because we we're like, oh, well, now we're going to spend $5 less on each MQL. No, it's because we, we make twice as much money from our marketing channel by using data, technology, and process to directly change how the team is engaging with those records and hence work them more completely. Right? And that's one example of, of countless ways you could cut, yeah. cut the prospect or customer journey to find those kinds of moments to say, like, well, hold on a second. Like, what does success look like here? And how do we maximize this moment to really, again, drive towards that bottom line revenue number? Yeah, awesome. I Yeah, so this is a, a thing that I love getting into discussions with, with with people who really do get it, which is how, so we've coined a term that we found in the marketplace works much better, which is go nimbly creates revenue impact, right? So we find the patterns, uh, the gaps in your process that when we fill those gaps, it's going to have a significant revenue impact. It's a, it's a, it's the exact same thing as saying, you know, we're going to gain efficiency and we're going to create more revenue out of this. So I think we're completely aligned on that. One thing that I, you know, that I've kind of settled on is that in revenue operations, and so just a quick, what I think revenue operations is, so we can get on the same page with that, is I think it is the, you know, for lack of a better metaphor for people listening, I think it's the director of the, the go-to-market team. So I think if you're go to your revenue team as sales, marketing, customer success, anyone that's you know shaking the hands with the babies and kissing the moms, which is a metaphor that I love to mix up. Uh, and then ultimately <laughs> the, the directors are the revenue operators, the operations behind the scenes. And they are all after one thing, which is to make revenue impact in the organization. That's one flywheel of an organization that I, I really believe has a North Star, which is to generate new revenue. Um, and when you look at it that way, uh, I realize that for revenue operations, there is not core metrics 
to say if your operations team is, is doing well or not. You know, like uh, for an example, and this is something that I, I kind of want to get your take on, uh, you know, 10 years ago, people used to make jokes about marketing and like, well, we don't know what part of our marketing funnel is working. So we're just going to keep spending money on it. Well, here comes marketing attribution and suddenly CMOs have more money than God because they can say, hey, I can prove that what I'm doing actually drives revenue. And I think we're right at the precipice of operators being able to do a very similar thing. So how do you at Toast prioritize things that are going to make impact versus things that are urgent? Yeah, it's an incredibly nuanced and complex problem. That well, I think all just boil it down into about two minutes. Into about two minutes. All right, great. So, so no problem. So look, here's the, here's the things that I would drive towards, right, is is first and foremost that there is no right answer to that question. It's something your team is always going to need to figure out by braille. And the way that my teams always look at this, right, is first, do we have that impact in our environment? And do we believe it, right? Because I always break ROI statements out into one of two flavors, right? They're either going to be a direct time savings ROI, where we're really sure that if we do this thing, we're going to give Jason back five minutes of his day. And the other is a speculative ROI. We think if we do this, we're going to improve conversion or performance in this way, mm -hmm. right? But speculative ROIs are the ones that usually get out of control where the numbers just, they're pulling them from thin air and it's, it's not real or based on any data or previous experimental design. And so the things that I try and drive towards as we go through that impact conversation is really have we proved it, right? Like, do we, do we know that or do we think that? Mm -hmm. And that's what, you can make a decision to do something that you think based on anecdotal evidence, but that really boils down to experimental design. And are you, are you pushing on your team to run tight experiments that don't necessarily leverage tons of technology resources or operations resources to prove their hypotheses before you're going to believe that the impact is truly there? The urgency piece of it is, you know, candidly, it's usually going to be driven either by, hey, what is that largest impact or what has an external factor that's going to make us move here, right? You know, Toast has a tremendous number of external partners that when we have a contractual obligation, sometimes, you know, the impact could be really small, but it's just got to get done. And that combination of, hey, how much is this going to be worth to us and how sure we're going to actually get that kind of result? And what's the downward pressure, right? Why do we need to do this right now? Is there a contractual obligation or is it just we think we're going to, going to make more money? And using that matrix is going to help find that balance of which products to work on, right? The, the thing, though, that kind of is, is untouched in the way we just frame that, though, is, is what I would say, like, everyone's darling, where the challenge of being in operations sometimes is you have a lot of executive leaders mm -hmm. that need your resources and support and aren't always used to being told, no, your prior, your project is being prioritized. And so how do you build a culture internally where teams understand why their products are on the back burner for now, if you don't have enough resources to do everything your SLT wants to accomplish? Yeah, right. Uh, for us, in my background as in product, I, I take a very product-focused view of operations. So at all of GoNimble's customers, we manage operational roadmap for them. We use prioritization methods. Um, we use models. We use a model called 3DC, which I, which I don't know if you've done any research on, which is basically we take people's pipelines, what we call buying experiences. So we don't actually care about record types and things like that you have in Salesforce, but we take out your pipeline data, plug it into our system. And essentially what we can find is the volume, velocity, 
value and conversion of each of your buying experiences. So let's say you have an enterprise flow, you have a velocity flow, you have so on and so on. We look at those and we look for pattern recognition in any of those four levers. And to, to me, those four levers are all the levers that a revenue operations team needs to go, oh, we are have, there's a pattern of a low conversion happening at stage one to stage two. You get, your, you get your team into a room, you brainstorm, which is the art part of operations. What do we think we could hypothesize and do, very similar to what you, ex you explained, that might fix this stage one to stage two pattern we have? Usually it's going to be something in the BDR space or something in the marketing operations space because it's very early on in the stage cycle. Um, and it, it comes down to something in the marketing automation process. It comes down, it comes down to some kind of process or breakdown there, which you can experience by doing some durability testing through interviewing and taking more of a product design approach. But what we found is what we can do with that model is say we, we we're putting a line in the sand saying we did this operational project in, to improve enterprise sales buying experience from stage one to stage two because we saw a pattern of weak conversion there. And now let's see if that hypothesis has paid out because now we're tracking it for the next three or six months and we can see that we actually moved the needle. Now we didn't change how many BDRs we have. We didn't change any of those things. What, what we've done instead is say we made an operational change in our business that has actually improved the numbers. And what I'm trying to do in that model, and this is kind of where my question lies, is I'm trying to give the power back to operators because not many organizations, I know Toast is one of the ones that do recognize it, which maybe you can talk about your journey there, but not many organizations value operations in the way that they should. And so one of my big calls to ARMS is trying to um, teach operators how to present their impact that they actually have to an organization to get more operational staff, to get bigger budgets, to be able to actually push things forward. Because I think in a lot of ways, operations is one of the last landscapes that can be a value differentiator in a, in a SaaS business or in, in really any kind of business, but particularly technology. Yeah, and, and implicitly a massive competitive advantage. Yeah. You know, like especially in uh, nascent spaces like the spaces Toast works in. Um, you know, the investments we've made in operations has made us a more dangerous organization um, and fueled a lot of the hyper growth that has put Toast, you know, on the map. I think we just... You know, even going through COVID, just you know, moved up from a three to a five point eight billion dollar valuation, yeah. um, and so there's a you know, there's still a lot of interest because we've been able to maintain that kind of efficiency. And, and look, I I think that you've kind of asked me two two separate questions that I want to zoom in on and just make sure that they're the right questions. Which is like number one, like hey, like what are the metrics these operations teams should be looking at yeah. to justify their existence and impact? On the other side is how do you communicate about that impact with other departments, other teams to make sure that you're getting the resources you need. Um, is that right? Are those yep, that's that's questions? that's fair. I just wanted to get you, I wanted to get your perspective on 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 metrics, but I didn't want to get into this world of where we're talking about CAC and things like that. That to me are SaaS metrics; they're not operational metrics. Absolutely not. Yeah, no, because that's uh, CAC is a result, right. right? And that's the big thing that I like to drive towards in explaining to operations teams what they need to set up in their systems to be successful, which is about measuring inputs. Right. right. And I always put my old chem nerd hat back on. I, I studied chemistry in college. I, you know, ended up leaving school and getting into restaurants and entrepreneurship and then going back and finishing a degree. There's a whole long story there. But, you know, when you think about experimental design in a chemistry lab, you're usually measuring very clear things that are a function of time or mass or volume. Right. It's very tangible. Yes. And 
in particular, that, that function of time is one that is really important, right? And analyses like rate of change, right? How long does it take for something to happen? And how does that behavior change across time is really under-indexed by these teams because what they end up doing is, to your point, focusing in on CAC, right? Where CAC is not something that you can just change, right? You can't change behavior to change CAC. It doesn't tell you what to do, right? CAC is something that happens because a bunch of different people work on something and you got to figure out what they're doing. What are all the inputs that are going in to make that CAC number occur? Right. And so going through your funnel and being able to say, hold on a second, right? Where can we measure actions in time, right? An MQL is created, right? Do you just have a date stamp that's the day or do you have the date time? Right. Because if you know the date time it was created and you're also measuring date time on, you know, first activity from your BDRs, you can say with an incredibly high degree of precision, what was my time to first touch? Right. And time to first touch, that's an operational metric yeah. because that's going to be a combination of systems processing time and human factors that if you understand both with a high degree of certainty, you can then go in and say, OK, right. Our systems processing time is too high. Our team time is too high. And then that tells you what you can do to influence a result metric, whether that result metric is, you know, MQL top conversion rate or, or, you know, CAC from the bottom of the funnel. But it's how well do you understand every step of the customer journey and all of the inputs, right, that happen along the way. And like, again, just to put a really fine point on it, an input should be salient, right? It should be a thing that you can really understand and measure directly, right? An activity, whether it's a phone call, an email, a text message, elapsed time, right? Something start, started and then something ended. How long did that take? Yeah. Right. What those are not then is a conversion metric, right? You're not extrapolating anything. If you're like getting to the point where you're doing analysis on it, you stop looking at input metrics, right? You start to get towards things that you're yeah. inferring based on those inputs. Yeah. Before, before we like transition over, do you, do you agree? I'm just curious for your perspective. I, I do agree. So I've coined two terms. Um, so a lot of our job is to go in and, and, and cycle out. We destroy silos, right? That's what our organization is about. We use revenue operations as a method for that. Um, and a lot of that is calling organizations on their bullshit, right? Um, and so I like to go in and put four key metrics in is like the only operational metrics that we're gonna look at are conversion, value, volume, velocity. Those are the only four that I care about to measure our operations team. What things are we gonna do that we're really gonna push that needle? If someone comes to you with a vanity project, we better be able to pinpoint on our buying experience where that's going to actually change and you better make a hypothesis, Mr. Operator, that you think is going to go here because I'm going to hold you accountable to that hypothesis, right? To go yes. to your point. My background is not in science. My background is in design thinking, which is about emergent patterns showing up, right? So if I look at data long enough, you'll see patterns kind of light up the sky in a design formation that you're like, okay, here's where the problem is, right? Um, yeah. And it's never where people think it is. Now, people's intuition is usually right. There is usually a problem somewhere in X thing, but they always kind of miss it mislabel where they experience the problem to be the source of the problem, right? And so you have to, you have to use some detective skills to do that. The other thing that you mentioned is a really hairy subject that I talk about with people, which is the difference between what I call momentum-based metrics. Because if the end North Star is creating new revenue, that's all that matters. The problem with creating revenue is it takes time. If you're buying cycles six months to replace someone's time, you won't know right away if your operational change has impact. So you'll need to find key indicators, key true uh, KPIs that are truly part of your business model. And that's unique to each business. And that's what they don't like. They want a silver bullet for me, which is here's the five KPIs that are, moment, that are actually momentum for you. But that's unique to your business. For you, because I think of the way your industry works, that first touch is very critical. And you've honed in on that as being 
a true momentum-based KPI, where I, in my in industries I work with, MQL to SQL um, handoff in volume is usually bullshit. And you know this when you go talk to someone and you talk to someone in a marketing department and you go, oh, the sales team just came to me and said, they don't have enough leads. And that marketing head goes, well, we can just lower the score and flush them with a bunch of, a bunch of leads then. Yeah. See, now you're getting me hot under the collar. Look at that, right? Because uh, you're really touching on the thing that, that drives me personally crazy about these conversations in so many of these businesses. We didn't just sit down and go like, we think time to first touch is important, so let's focus on it. Right? Like That was a big analysis of all of this activity data and all of this MQL data that we had from a couple years that showed us all of these performance trends and let us say like, okay, really though, what's the difference in between how we worked on these leads that led to success or failure. Right? We're assuming it's the same people and the same leads. So how does that impact it, right? But that's the question you ask, right? Impacted that, not did time to first touch impact that? Because that, even just the way you ask that question is going to bias the results in the data that you're looking at. And to your point, it's it's a way of just being unbiased, right? This isn't about my lived experience as a as a BDR manager that feels like it's important for us to time touch these like quickly or to work them X number of times. Yeah. You no, know, we know that we hit the 95th percentile conversion on X touch, right? So we're gonna build a whole data model around getting to that percentile, right? right? And like that's how we're gonna work together as a team. And look, it, it's so to me, you transition this conversation over. I think a big part of building that relationship with your leadership team is helping them understand how to look at the data that your business is creating. And Mm -hmm. have you created common languages within your business that everyone starts to have an understanding of what metrics matter and how we ask for things from one another. Um, And like, I can give a bunch of specific examples of this where, you know, as you start to create what I would call like process for process, that then gives you ways of of meeting people in an unbiased way. Cause like the, the biggest part of this is operations kind of needs to be an agnostic party, right? Yes, correct. We're not telling you, we're not telling you no, we're questioning whether or not your methods and sources were right. Right. And like our goal is to help make sure that you're using the best possible methods and sources. And so, ah, the way you're asking that question, that data, that feels a little biased. Let's talk about how to ask unbiased questions and data, and then let's rerun that analysis properly. Yeah. Right. If you can do that effectively within your business, then teams are going to want to come to you because you're going to always then be the person who helps release the most impactful process, the most impactful technology, and really solve the most urgent business problems you have in a way that has lasting impact. Yeah, totally. Uh, One thing I've been working on is a maturity model of explaining this in like a simple term, right? So I think of operations of the business, and it usually goes right along with where you are as a technology company, you know, series A, B, C, so on is in the very beginning when you are first starting, you are an entirely intuition-based operations team. Someone walks into a room, says there's problems with a page layout in Salesforce. Uh, You go, yeah, I can see that's probably an issue. Tom, let's move these things around. You're not supposed to see this. Cool, everyone feels good about it. Or maybe as an operator, you see this and you're like, oh, this can be more efficient. I'm gonna move some shit around and, and good. That is where organizations stay for a while. And then they begin to become successful and grow and silos start to emerge. And the first thing that you do when you start to silo is you go, oh shit, it's time to bring in people who know what they're doing. And you move to the second maturity model, which is experiential based. So you'll hire everyone who has a lot of experience and you'll rely on that experience to guide that. So now it's no longer based on intuition. It's based on, hey, Tom, what did you do at LinkedIn? Okay, that's what we'll do for sales territory management. Now, 
the, the holy grail, and that's to me where most organizations stay, the holy grail is to move to what I call customer-based operation, which is we are actually going to do insights on the data to find out where our customers want us to become more operationally effective because that is the best chance we have in order to actually impact revenue. Because it's not a question of can we, uh, in, I'm going to use a term that we, we already had a conversation about, but can we become more efficient and save money? It's actually a conversation of what are we leaving on the table because we don't know what to ask for from our customers or because we've already eroded trust from them or because you know, our marketing team sent them an email when they're in the middle of a buying cycle and for them to replace their systems, POSs at $35,000 a month is a huge investment and it makes them feel like, okay, this is some big technology company who doesn't give a shit about our small business or whatever the case might be. These are very human factors that operations has to solve at scale through technology process and people. And I think that the holy grail is getting to that point where you're making all the decisions. Now, what I found is if you see an issue with the customer, you're going to have people on your team who have experience to solve that. And someone's intuition is probably going to be right. But that's how you lead to the most impactful operational projects that you could possibly do. Yeah, I think that the only thing I would, again, kind of go to here is, is the planning process that your team has already developed. Because kind of to your point, right? Like so many members of SLT, senior leadership teams are going to come in and say, well, you know, I worked at LinkedIn, I worked at PayPal, I worked at Google, and this is how we did it. So let's run that playbook. Yes. And you as the operations leader need to be able to figure out how you're going to verify with them, whether or not that playbook will work within your business. Mm -hmm. And that's going to really boil down to how much you've created that common process between teams to say like, Hey, I'm not saying no, right. I'm not telling you, new CMO that you don't know about you know, funnel optimization or a new success officer that you don't understand how to build a care team. Right. I'm saying that you know, our playbook here is we look at this kind of data. And so how are we going to use that model to see whether or not your hypothesis is actually going to hold true here? What experiment can we run? Do we actually already have the data to analyze this and see if the gap is there? And that, that operations culture, right? that's the hardest part to to build, particularly in companies going through hypergrowth. Yes. But I think that what you're, what you're leaning towards or seeing or, or explaining is that these teams bring in really senior people to be their silver bullet and know how to solve all of their problems, but they have insights into where the problems could be. You still need to figure out if that's where the problems actually are. Correct. I, here's what I think is I think when you build a SaaS company from the very beginning, the way you're successful is by listening to your customers. I think somehow in the growth of an organization, you stop listening to the people who are actually buying the product and you start listening to all the voices in the room internally that drive a business to be uh, its own thing. And then you start to expose your customers to your own hot dog making, right? Like It's like <laughs> no one wants to see that. What they want to do is replace you know, their systems or whatever your technology does for people. That's what they're after. They don't, and, and the people who are interested in the internal workings of your organization can be interested, but we have to stop acting like we can't meet our customers where our customers are at and delivering a personalized experience to each customer. And I think that's well, I also, the holy grail of operations, which is I don't work on behalf of any person within my organization. I stand as my own true partner to the organization, but we all on the revenue team, the go-to-market team, work on behalf of the customer. And we're going to be very personalized to each customer at the scale that our product demands, right? Some products are velocity-based. They don't really require much personalization. But ultimately, when we've done surveys, all 
B2B buyers wish that they had more of a personalized B2C experience while buying B2B product. Yeah. And look, here's the thing that I, I would just sharpen in how you're, you're explaining this, which is, I don't know if it's always that as you scale, you only start to listen to the voices in the room as much as those voices in the room actually grow further and further away from the set of tasks that it actually takes to bring a customer live and the true experiences of the customers in your different buying or customer journeys, right? You know, my, my whole thing is, is, you know, chemistry and restaurants are my background, right? Before I got into SaaS, before I got into, that's, that's where I cut my teeth. And it makes it so salient when you think about things, the way a restaurant has to think about them to create a experience for their customers, right? Cause that's just, it's such a clear series of tasks, right? If you order a burger, there's a grill guy who needs to do something. There's the fry guy that needs to do something. You know, there's the, the person who's going to bring it out to you. And everyone has a very clear task in that supply chain with very clear, like entry and exit criteria for when their work begins and when their work stops. Yeah. And the thing that I've seen happen is these, you know, companies like Toast, you know, go from 200 employees to 3000 employees and then down to 1500 and then back to 2000, right? Is the people who are sitting in the room making the decision, you know, it's been a year and a half. It's been two years. It's been three years. It's been five years since they actually were on the phone or had to build a quote. And yeah. so they come up with ideas that are actually the right idea, but then Correct. the way it's executed in the system, to your point, doesn't actually meet the customer where they are. And that part of operation to bridge that gap, right? Between the strategic thinkers that are trying to say like, what's the next big thing we need to do as a team? What's the most important metric? And the experience of your customers and employees in those processes and technologies. So you build the right experiences for that. And that how you make sure that as you're going through that ideation with that, that, that room of really smart, really senior people that have the right ideas, you pull it back to that grounding of like, okay, but like what you're asking me to do means that our prospect is now going to get three quotes. Yeah. Right. I'm not telling you no, but would, if you were buying technology from me, would you want to get three quotes? Correct. Right. Maybe we need to rethink how we're going to approach this in a way that makes that customer experience better. And that, both meets our executive leaders where they are, right? Of like, they have something they need to get done. And our job ultimately is in to enable them to do it. Well, still to your point, advocating effectively for the, the people internally, externally, externally who are going to be impacted by that decision, right? And like, that's so much of my job at Toast today, right? Is bridging that, that tactical and strategic, right? That, that person who drives a desk every day and picks up the phone to answer a support line, right? To deal with a customer who's, you know, standing in front of that fryer later and is pissed off about something. And our executive team who's sitting in a room talking about how we make our support experience better, right? And that, that understanding of the reality of the business, it's, it's an incredibly helpful lens to be able to bring into those rooms. And a lot of what operations has to bring to the table. So if I give you these three topics, which everyone that's a bit on the, the kill your silos has sort of ha had to deal with as an operator and you just touched on it. And so before we go to a lightning round, I, I kind of want to ask you this. If as a head of operations, you must be a scientist, a psychologist, and a designer, which of those jobs do you enjoy the least? Personally, the psychologist. Um, because I, if you read between the lines of the industries <laughs> that I grew up in, yeah, uh, I'm not always very nice about things. Um, <laughs> look, like I, I come from the brigade system, right? If you've not worked in a restaurant, the brigade system is the hierarchical you know, this, the, the, the chef 
has a sous chef. The sous chef controls these people, right? And it's like everyone takes their orders from the top down, and it's very clear, right? <laughs> Transitioning to a professional world, that's not really how anybody's decision making or organization structures truly function. Um, yeah. But I can get frustrated, right? Like as an individual. Yeah. And sometimes it's important for us to slow down and bring even very senior leaders kind of back to the square one of like, hold on a second, like this is the thing that's happening in our business that we're about to change. And it can be frustrating, right? When you're working with people that you feel like should already know this, it's like, you're the, you're the, the VP of sales at a, you know, one of the Forbes 10 cloud companies. What do you mean? You don't know that our quoting experience is bad. Right. But like the, the important thing that I've always kind of had to keep in mind as someone who does not think of themselves as a psychologist is shifting the onus back to myself Right. The reason my VP of sales doesn't know that is because I didn't tell him that that was a problem. Yeah. Right. And that the education to make sure that the people in those seats are aware of what's going on within the business. Right. That falls squarely on the operations team as well. And so, well, I'm like the last person you should ever hire for psychotherapy. Like, please let the entire world know that I am not the shoulder you want to cry on. Um, I do think that it's important for us to remember, like that we have to carry that torch in the business because otherwise this is not going to happen. Right. And like, I find that I deal better when I think about things as like, this is an opportunity for me to educate Jason instead of Jason, why do you not know this already, man? Yeah, totally. Um, and like, that's how I, from, to use your turn of phrase, the, the, the part of my job I enjoy the least, how I stay positive in it. <laughs> that's great. All right. Lightning round. Are you ready for this? It's going to be a this or that situation. All right. This or that. Got it. Okay. Breakfast or dinner? Oh, dinner. Dinner. What, what's, what, what's the dinner? Like what dinner am I making? Yeah, when, well, what dinner are you making or eating? Okay, uh, if I'm going out right now, Chinese food, I've been living in Vermont for like six or seven months now. And man, I miss Boston Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, if I'm cooking for myself, um, probably a steak au pois because I really just love making creamy steaks and that's a, that's a lifestyle choice. Nice. I like to make the milk steak, uh, which is when you have milk and you pour it over steak, it's, it's delicious. Um, look it up, it's good um I'll, I'll give it a go half full or half empty kind of guy oh half empty <laughs> so half empty um i am negatron all day yeah uh art or music art personally art uh what does art how does art impact your job and your decision making um at the risk of sounding like I'm uh, kissing your ass, Jason, it's design thinking, right? It's an incredibly important piece of being an operations leader in a business today. Um, I was fortunate enough to work early in my career with a guy named Alex Turnwall, who's the chief design officer at BevSpot and an incredible design thinker. And his ability to think about the way that people engaged with spaces in technology forever has changed the way I look at the technology I'm building and the experience people have in it. Absolutely. Right. And if you'll give me the time, do you mind if I give an example of no, like, how I've come to think about this? Yeah. So I'm going to pull this kind of full circle to how I look at the lens of restaurants, right. And, and creating efficiency. Um, anytime you go into a restaurant, right. Every grill that you've ever seen, is going to have a bottle of oil sitting right next to it. Right. right? Because anytime something goes on that grill, what's that grill guy going to do? He's going to reach over, he's going to pick up the bottle, of oil, he's going to put some grill on, he's going to put down, he's going to do whatever burger, chicken, doesn't matter. That's going on that grill top. As a restaurant, operator 
you would never take that bottle of oil and like stick it in a cabinet down at the bottom of the stairs so that your grill guy, every time he needed to do his job, like ran down a flight of stairs to go and find something and then like take it upstairs, put it on the grill, go back downstairs to the light, like and do that whole process because it's just going to add a ton of steps. Yeah. Right? And the design of that space is going to screw up the employee experience or customer experience you're trying to create. Right. In our CRM systems, we make our employees run up and down the stairs to like find information all the time. Correct. Like constantly in the technology. But that's a design problem. Like at its core, that's a design problem. Correct. And that ability to use the way, you know, what's so obvious to an artist or a designer of being like, you really put that in a dumb place. Like maybe visually you should just move it over here. Right. Like is something that my brain is not naturally calibrated for. And I've had to really bring into both like the teams that I build and the way I educate myself because it's never my first thing to be like, oh, well, that's three clicks away. Right. Yeah. But, like those three clicks could really change the employer customer experience. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Uh, great answer. Um, you know, one of the things that we were talking about, just to elaborate on this a little bit more, is the role of a of an operator, in my opinion, is I'm a big proponent of an idea called range. I believe that operators at business, not every role in a business, but operators, especially in revenue operations, when I view the skills of revenue operations being strategy, tools, enablement, and insights at scale. So I don't think that a revenue operations person has to be the sales enablement coach. I actually don't think revenue operations should do any one-to-one coaching with anyone. I think it's all about doing things at scale. So what's our process for enabling the entire sales team? Not how am I going to help John? That's a VP of sales job or someone like that um, role in an organization. But when I think about people, I often think that organizations tend to choose an operations specialist. You know, you can go into an organization and go, okay, this is a tool shop. Everybody that's an operator of this company wants to solve everything with a Salesforce solution. Um, everybody at this organization just wants to talk about strategy all day, but they don't know how to solve anything with tooling. Um, and so one of the big components that we're fans of is creating uh, operators who have range, who, who in a perfect world, you would be a 25, 25, 25, 25% of all of those four skills I just mentioned. Um, in reality, as your organization grows, like where Toast is, you have to try to calibrate your operations team that way. You're going to have individuals that emerge as the best person to cook fish or the best person to do it, whatever. But ultimately, as the operator, you have to have your eye on this efficiency lens of, are we well balanced? Are we having every door be able to be open to us? And that reminds me of what it must be like to be a chef, which is there's probably people who are better meat you know, cooks in a restaurant I don't know what the right term is. I hope none of my customers are listening to this one right now because they're going to give me a call after work. <laughs> you, you, might, you might not be the best as a chef. You might not be the best meat cook in your restaurant, but you have to know, you have to know all, a little bit about all those things um, in order to be a chef and know how to pull things together, right? Um, especially as you probably get more successful. Like, can Thomas Keller cook anything anymore? I don't know. Um, so, so ultimately, the question is, do you believe in a specialized operations team or do you believe, and I'm hoping you're going to say range because it's going to make me look like an asshole otherwise, but do you believe in a more ranged approach? I believe in hyper-specialization. No, I believe in, I believe in a ranged approach as well. Um, look, I think that teams need specialists because, you know, you need somebody who's your crack analyst. You need somebody who's your data architect. You need somebody who, you know, is your Salesforce wizard. But as an operator, your job is to kind of look across all of the needs of the business. And unless you can understand those things well enough to engage with any of those players, it's going to really inhibit your ability to be completely effective, right? Because so much of my time is just spent translating, right? Due to a lack of better words, right? I'm sitting down with a go-to leader who's saying, hey, we want to launch this initiative. We want to do this thing, right? And I'm taking that 
and turning into, you know, user stories or business requirements and then sitting down with a very technical person and saying, okay, here's what the, the business needs. Let's talk about what the technology needs to do to support this and gathering their, you know, very technical requirements. But those are two totally different languages to have to be able to speak. Right. And to your point, right, my job is not to be able to execute that change in the system that that admin understands, nor is it to understand the world of that go to market leader. It's to make sure that we're bringing things together in a way that can create commonality. And that's not me saying you don't need those specialists. You absolutely need those specialists on your team. But I think to your point, right, as the operations person, you kind of need to be able to swim in any difference. And if you find yourself struggling to do one of those things, you've got to surround yourself with people who maybe they are a little more specialized in that area, but can mm -hmm. fill in that gap and think that way for you, right? Because wow. my whole thing is bringing in a plurality of ideas, right? If you think about that, you know, how many times in this conversation alone, I've referenced my background in, in chemistry or in restaurants, because I pull on those experiences every day to create my own operations philosophy. Correct. And I have operators I've worked with who, you know, come from an economics background or a consulting background. And I see how they do that same thing, right? Because they're just trying to figure out how to take all of their experiences and use it to color the way they influence these sometimes nebulous concepts within the business and design processes that are understandable, whether the person you're working with is also a generalist or is a hyper-specialized member of the team. Right, correct. Uh, one of my heroes is this guy named Phil Inzer, and I don't know if you're familiar with Phil. Uh, Phil worked for Goodyear Tires. He's the one that came up with the term silo syndrome, and I probably wouldn't have a job without him. And his job was to go around to each Goodyear Tire factory and try to make them work like a unified business. And all he got was pushback. And driving through Iowa one day, he saw some corn silos and he was like, oh shit, everyone's in their own silo. And so he created this term and he labeled it as four primary reasons that silos get created. And this is what GoNimbly, why GoNimbly focuses on SaaS and technology companies because the four re reasons that silos emerge in businesses is the number of employees grow rap too rapidly for the organization to handle. So hyper growth. Uh, second, number of organizational units within the organization double or triple. So uh, people don't know this, but Goodyear Tires was a huge organization they were opening like 10 or 15 stores a month in regional locations that they didn't really have control over, hiring local people to work in those jobs. Huge growth, degree of specialization. So then people can't communicate to each other anymore, which goes to your translation point. And then the last, a number of different incentive mechanisms. So our people in the organization have to be incentivized all on the same thing. At Toast, as you've gone on this revenue operations journey, what of those four things have you really run into that was the hardest to kill, so to speak, for lack of a better of tying the whole show together and ending on a high note? I, I want to say it's the incentives piece because a lot of my background is working with sales organizations mm -hmm. and marketing organizations. We're making changes to incentives, right? Like you're, you're touching people's income. Right? You're touching the, something that's so important to their day-to-day -day lives. And um, if you make mistakes, it can be very, very costly to the business, either because of, you know, you, you make a mistake and you underpay people and you're going to have attrition, you're going to lose a lot of talent, or you make a mistake and you way overpay people and it's literally expensive to the business because you <laughs> wrote a bad commission plan. Yeah. Um, but that I think that when people understand their role through the lens of an incentive structure, it's so hard because you're going to them and saying that you're changing the way they understand success or failure in their role. 
yeah. right? That could really negatively, it's, it creates a tremendous amount of uncertainty and stress and pressure for those individuals, right? That in, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to your, you know, SVP of sales or CRO whose job has been tied to, you know, a bookings number and you want to shift to live ARR, right? Or a marketing leader right. who's been, you know, counting raw MQLs and now you want to shift to, you know, opportunities created or revenue, to them, what they're hearing is that like you're going to make my job harder, right? You're going right. to take money away from me, and you're going to you're going to change what a system that I have already built to be successful. And you know, back to that, I'm not a good psychologist. That is a really nuanced conversation to have, where you need to really help them understand why you're making these changes, what you're going to do if these changes don't work, how you're going to protect them from risk, and that that overlap of you know what I would call the HR function within your business, right? Of yeah. Like managing compensation yeah. and making an operational change, right? There's just so much that's in there that's actually like outside of, are we doing the right thing operationally for the business and into the psychology of people that I just find it extremely challenging to, yeah. to drive the right change in a way that doesn't make anyone in the business feel alienated um, and keep it positive. When I'm thinking about this, it goes to this idea though. I am a big fan of putting everyone on some kind of, commission or compensation thing that is involved in the revenue team, including revenue operators saying yeah. your job is to generate net new revenue. So we're going to give you a number that is above and beyond our quota. And we're going to have to generate that. So if, uh, imagine for this, just to keep it simple, we have a million dollar quota in the sales team. Uh, you're going to have to get $260,000 through operational gains. So it's going to be uh, $1,260,000. And the operations team is going to drive and measure themselves based on, can they hit that? And in, 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 like, actually contribute revenue to the business. If I say that, do your hairs on your neck stand up or do you go, yeah, fuck yeah, I want that challenge? Um, the, the thing that I would always go to is, are those numbers real and are they realistic? Right, because look, like the, and this is kind of back to why I think commissions and compensation is like one of the hardest things to change, right? When you say, hey, we want to drive basically a 26% increase in our overall revenue capture this year through operations gains, right? How do we get to a million dollars is the goal in the first place is, you know, did the sales team do $600,000 last year? And like, actually I could double their performance and still miss my number. Yeah. Right. It's, it becomes a question of how good is the data and planning process within your business yeah. and how much are you creating goals that are stretch goals that if you accomplish them, everyone reaches the reward for versus we've created a stretch goal. That, you know, we as a leadership team know, but actually, you know, that that individual operator is going to lose a bunch of sleepover because they think that they failed. Mm -hmm. Right. And like that's really that's really challenging. Look, I agree with you fundamentally that like everyone needs to have a KPI. Right. Everyone should be tied somehow to that revenue. Right. It's about whether or not your business has the maturity to really understand how to set good goals there. And I think for businesses in hyper growth launching new products, scaling rapidly, that can be a really challenging exercise. And so like the cautionary tale there is to not uh, create a model that will inadvertently de-incentivize people, right? Because if you know you get halfway through the quarter and the team's you know, only done $100,000 in sales and everyone knows they're not going to get their commission yeah. or, their, or their bonus, all of a sudden you have a really demotivated- Yeah, you do 125, you have, you're halfway to the quarter and now- you did $100,000, your goal is $300,000. Watch it, you only make it to $125,000. Yep, because everyone's like, oh, well, I'm not going to get there anyway, and so I'm not going to get paid, right? And so, like, there's this real, like, 
you know, did you test that hypothesis? Are you confident in that hypothesis before you roll a commission out plan around it? Right. And I've, I've made this mistake. I've rolled out commission plans that were too soft or too hard that have either, you know, led to people be demotivated too early because, you know, they've cashed their check on the basically 10th day of the month and are like, dude, I'm already tw- twice my quota. So like, why would I make more calls right now? And like, because damn it, <laughs> right. like the alternative yeah. of like, oh man, like you're totally demotivated because you feel like you're failing, even though like actually I just set the bar too high. And yeah. so like, you know, my, my whole thing here is that I just think quota setting is something that your team, you, you got to have good data for, or you need to be able to explain to your team, like, listen, Jason, we're going to run towards 1.2. Yeah. But you need to trust that I've got your back. Yeah. Right. If we if we're getting through the quarter and we realize that, like, actually, that number was completely realistic. I need you to know you're not going to get hung out to dry and you're still going to get paid. Right. Because if we all show up to work and we do the right things, as long as, you know, the business has liquid and we're, we're you know, not going to be going bankrupt, we're going to cover you because we're running this test and we want to get out over our CKs. Right. And so, you know, one of the things and this might sound silly, but like I often share with my teams is how far overboard plan our internal goals actually are. Yeah. Right. And helping them see that it's like, listen, right. Like Jason, we raised this money with the assumption that we were going to do this number. Yeah. Right. So don't sit there and think that if we fail to get there, the business is actually on fire. Right. Right. You know, we're going to push ourselves to get there and, you know, maybe don't tell the sales team, but like your operators should know that. Right. And people that are going to be working to drive efficiency. And that was a really long winded answer to something that should have been a simple, simple. No, no, it was a beautiful answer. You know, one thing that, I like about you is that uh, your brain works like a scientist, and you're 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 hedging uh, you're hedging all the games. You're you're keeping all the levels accurate, and you're not you're not you're not going too far out your skis. And and, and as a designer, um, you know you have to. It, it is nice to have this uh, challenging conversation about um, reality versus uh, inspiration, and you know. I think that both of us are trying to fundamentally change the game for operators, both for our own teams and, and in the industry. And, you know, it, it's actually pretty brave to say, hey, realistic goal setting is pretty important. And if you read between the lines, most organizations and technology are terrible at that. Um, pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad. And we'll do anything they can do to get more money to continue to grow the business um, and just hope that their growth numbers trump the fact that they didn't hit their quotas. Um, or some other metric that they can turn uh, and, and sell to someone. So, you know, I think that we're, this whole conversation has been, we are on two separate paths getting to the same conclusion about the world. And I really appreciate that, Lynn. So thank you, Ross, for joining me. I appreciate it. I do have one final question, which is, I mean, I am probably the smartest mind in operations. And so what question do you have for the smartest guy in operations? Why do you think you're the smartest guy in operations? Um, we're actually out of time for the show, so I'll answer that next <laughs> week. Thank you so much, Ross, for your time. I appreciate it, man. Catch you on the flip side. Bye. And scene. I like how you just weaseled out of that one. You were like, <laughs> you're like, I didn't psych. <laughs>